0: This is an MVP podcast, My Village Productions.
1: Welcome to Unsolved America, a show where we explore unsolved mysteries throughout the United States. I'm your host, Tiffany.
0: And I'm your host, Andy. And each week, we will throw a dart at the map, and wherever it lands is the location of our mystery.
1: This week, I landed on Connecticut.
0: Connecticut. Last season, you had a really difficult time saying the word Connecticut. I remember that because I edited, edited the <laughs> podcast.
1: It will probably happen again.
0: You would say Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> you would say you said it so weird. It was so funny, and I I giggled throughout the entire editing process.
1: Uh, I'm not surprised. I'm
0: pretty sure most of them are left in there because I was like, I can't just take this out
1: the state every <laughs> single time we mention the state gone
0: <laughs> otherwise they would not know what state we were doing
1: yeah i think when i look at it because it, I mean, it's spelled c-o-n-n-e-c-t and so i'm always like you want to pronounce
0: yeah you want to pronounce the, that c
1: yeah but you're not supposed to it's silent the c is silent Connecticut. Connecticut.
0: now i I shouldn't have said it because now now it's gonna it's gonna Uh, mess you up
1: screw you (laughs) we're gonna talk about a girl named suzanne joven and i will preface this i don't know why the last two episodes or this whole season that i've done things it's been about like really horrific murders But
0: it's the balance. I I focus on disappearances this time and probably next time I'll focus on murder. This time you'll probably next time you'll probably do disappearances. (laughs) Right.
1: Right. Probably. This one was named Suzanne Joven. She was born January 26, 1977 in Germany. She was raised in Germany by her American scientist parents. Her father, Thomas, was a molecular scientist and her mother, Donna, was a cell biologist.
0: Damn, they just smart in this right. family.
1: She also spoke four different languages. Okay,
0: overachiever.
1: Yeah, and she traveled all throughout Europe when she was growing up, so she was very well-rounded and had wow. a lot of, you know, insight into a lot of different areas cultures and, and cultures and yeah. things like that. Wow. Suzanne also worked for three years in the Davenport Dining Hall and ran the Yale chapter of the Best Buddies program, Okay. Which was a program that it was an international organization that brings together students and intellectually disabled adults. So that's really cool. Yeah. Obviously she was at Yale um in Connecticut and she was double majoring in political science and international studies. Okay. Right.
0: Suzanne <laughs>
1: She she was just a smart cookie. For
0: real. This whole family just sounds like a bunch of geniuses.
1: Right? I wish. I mean, my family's smart. Yeah,
0: you're, I was going to say your family's always smart, so you can't I talk. wish I
1: was smart. On December 4th, 1998, she went to go drop off her draft of her senior essay. And she did it on Osama Bin Laden, which is kind of funny. Um, But anyway, she went to go drop off her essay at around 4.15 on that Friday. And then she began preparing for a pizza party that she was going to, that she had been organizing with the church she went to. Um, okay. They were doing it with the Best Buddy program, and so it was just bringing them together and, you know, having a pizza-making party, which That's sounds fun. really fun. By 8.30, after staying late and helping clean up after the pizza party, she was driving another volunteer home in okay. a borrowed friend's car, a station wagon, and around 845, she returned the car to the Yale parking lot okay. on the corner of Edgewood Avenue and Howe Street and proceeded to walk two blocks to her second floor apartment on Park Street, which was actually upstairs from a Yale police substation.
0: Okay. Sounds safe.
1: Right. So she was it sounds like she was in a good location. She, you know, was close to the campus police. Yeah. So it's really weird how this all unfolds. Oh, no. So sometime prior to 850, a few friends passed by her window and asked her if she wanted to join them at the movies. Suzanne said no. She wanted to do some schoolwork that night. And at 902, they logged her into, they logged the computer into uh, logging into her email, her Yale email. Okay. And she emailed a friend in, in German that she was going to leave some GRE books for her at the apartment complex inside the building's lobby. Okay. She said she also had to retrieve them from a unnamed person who had borrowed them from her but she provided the access code to her friend and so they she could come in and just grab those books whenever she swung by okay so this unnamed person who she emailed in german has never been identified weird actually i'm sorry the unnamed person that had the books
0: okay okay sorry
1: sorry sorry the unnamed person that had the books has never been identified okay Because in the email, she said somebody that I let borrow. So no one ever came forward. I have to
0: go get them before you can borrow them. Kind of a situation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Whether Suzanne met this person or not, we don't know. Okay. At 910, she logged off. And. At that time. It's not known whether she received any phone calls or made any phone calls um, because the Yale's Yale's telephone system is not traceable. Oh. In 1998.
0: That makes sense. But they couldn't even like to. mm, okay. They don't know if there was an outgoing call.
1: Right. Yeah. They it's just not traceable. They don't know. It's all on one system. Weird. Okay. Right. I don't know. So shortly after that, Suzanne headed out on foot to the Yale Police Communication Center on Yale's old campus to return the keys to the car that she had borrowed. Shortly before reaching her destination at around 922, Suzanne encountered a classmate named Peter who was out for a walk. Peter quotes saying she did not mention any plans to go anywhere or do anything else afterward, she just said she was very, very tired and that she was looking forward to getting a lot of sleep. Peter mm-hmm. also said that Suzanne was not wearing a backpack and she was holding one or more sheets of white 8 by 11 paper in her right hand. And that she was just walking at a normal pace and did not look nervous or excited or...
0: Like frantic. Anything or- weird, right? Yeah.
1: She just was just walking across the quad or the old campus. Okay. He said that their encounter only lasted about two or three minutes and then she was on her way. Based on that timeline, Suzanne is presumed to have returned the keys to the car at about 925. She was reportedly last seen alive between 925 and 930 that night by another Yale student on foot returning from a hockey game. She was walking north on College Street, he said. However, it was later clarified it's unclear whether Suzanne was walking somewhere, waiting for someone or pausing to admire the holiday lights along the New Haven Green. Okay. At 9:55, a passerby dialed 911 to report a woman bleeding on the corner of Edgehill Road and East Rock Road, about 2 miles from the Yale campus where Suzanne was last seen. Okay. When, when police arrived at 9:58, they found Suzanne fatally stabbed 17 times. Right. Aggressive. My last so aggressive. one was like 30. And
0: Yeah. These are like crimes of mm-hmm. passion, my friend. Right.
1: Yeah. So she was stabbed 17 times in the back of her head and neck, and her throat was slit.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. They found her laying on her stomach. And her feet were in the road and the body was in the grassy area between the road and the sidewalk. She was fully clothed and still wearing her watch and earrings. And she actually had like a dollar bill in her pocket. Her wallet was later found to be still in her room. So because they thought maybe you robbery know, it was a robbery, but they found the wallet later.
0: I mean robbery. I don't think you're stabbing somebody 17 times.
1: Right. So many items and observations have been reported by the police over the last however long it's been. Much have been like discredited though, or okay. not not come to fruition or hearsay or unreliable. Okay. The most notable physical evidence that appears is there was DNA found in scrapings under her fingernails.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And then her fingerprints and an unknown person's partial palm print were found on a Fresca bottle in the bushes in front of where her body was found.
0: Her fingerprints and somebody else's fingerprints.
1: Not fingerprints, but like the palm, palm print. Okay. So yeah. So Interesting. her. Interesting. Yeah, on a Fresca bottle. And then lastly, the tip of the knife used in the attack was also lodged in her skull. Oh. So it broke off.
0: Wow. This was a very violent murder. It
1: was a very violent murder. I
0: mean, like all murder is violent, but like this is.
1: Yeah. You, I mean, next level. You have to have some aggression to break off a piece of the knife.
0: Well, I feel like if you get it lodged in somebody, that's really gross. But if you get it lodged in somebody's skull, I imagine it would be pretty difficult to pull out.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That's wild. Right. Wild. Also, there were some observations that there was a tan or brown van stopped in the roadway facing east, immediately adjacent to where Suzanne was found. A man in his 20s or 30s with an athletic build, well-groomed hair, dark pants, a loose-fitting greenish jacket, running like his life depended on it in the opposite direction from where Suzanne was also killed. And there was also a mysterious, nondescript someone whom Suzanne mentioned in an email she sent less than an hour before she was found stabbed, where she had to go pick up the books from. So there's three different suspects, let's say, because the person in the van Mm-hmm. Some dude running in the opposite direction. Like his life yeah. depended on it. And then this random person that she had to go pick up books from. These were all suspects, but person obviously. of interest. Yeah. The only speculation about the murder weapon came a few years later. Okay. And it was broadcasted on ABC's 2020, actually. Okay. The medical examiner identified only one of the 17 stab wounds as fatal. Okay. He also determined that the murder weapon was a four to five inch non-serrated carbon steel knife. And when he discovered the tip of the blade lodged in the left side of her skull. Okay. The police never revealed whether any tests have been done to determine a precise make or model of the knife for some reason. That's weird. There have been no reports of anyone witnessing Suzanne enter or exit any vehicle. And it's assumed that she actually might have been forcibly or voluntarily entering one for some reason. I don't know why people are saying that, but because she was two miles away and when she was seen, she was on foot.
0: Yeah, I mean, could she? Huh.
1: I mean, there's and, and yeah, there's. She could
0: walk, but like,
1: yeah, but not that quickly though, right? Because remember, she was seen at like nine twenty five. That's true, or nine thirty or something like that, and then the police were there by nine fifty eight at the other location where she passed away.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of shenanigans that went down for her to be mm-hmm. in the state she was in,
1: right? So the. Evidence of the tan van Mm -hmm. was never made public until 2001. Okay. Members of the Yale faculty had reported the police were asking privately about the van, but again, it was never put into any reports or news reports um, that they were searching for this vehicle. Okay. They did impound a brown van in November of 2001. As part of the investigation, but no link was ever confirmed between the van and Suzanne. Okay. So the Fresca bottle came to light in April 2001. So all of this was like very hush-hush for a few years Mm -hmm. because they didn't want all the evidence to be out in the open.
0: Yeah, you keep your cards close to your chest in these situations.
1: There was only one store in the vicinity of the campus that sold Fresca, apparently. Okay. And it was still open whenever Suzanne was walking about because of their hours, whatever. Okay. It, was th- it was still assumed to be open.
0: Do they have, did they have security cameras?
1: So they maintained a video recording of its customers for security purposes. Okay. But the police never asked to view the security cameras. That's weird. Right. Why? I have no idea. They haven't even, like, asked to talk to the store employees or customers about if they even saw anything weird that night.
0: That's so bizarre.
1: Right. Because so,
0: that potentially was the very last person that saw her mm-hmm. before yeah. all of this went down. Right. Which, and that's granted, we're assuming exactly. that she hadn't bought it earlier that day or, like, you know, but I guess she wasn't seen carrying it.
1: Mm-hmm. and she didn't
0: have a backpack or anything so yeah she would have had to buy it freshly right freshly recently <laughs> that's yes. the right word
1: so the palm print that was found on it the fresca bottle has just it's never been identified or anything as well and there is never any dna pulled from it
0: okay what about, did they ever get anything from the dna under her fingernails Mm-mm. They should uh, you would think that they would like periodically run it still.
1: So there was the first mention of the DNA under the finger- fingernails was in October of 2001. So, again, three years two 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 and a half years after,
0: you know, they're keeping all this really hush hush, which in part is good, because then you can guarantee that if somebody does come forward with specifics.
1: Mm hmm. The only reason it came to light, though, is because the New Haven Police Department was asking colleagues, friends, acquaintances of Suzanne to come forward and give DNA samples voluntarily okay, to see if they could match it. But there was no explanation of why it took three years to start doing that.
0: Yeah, that's just bizarre. Mm -hmm. You would think like somebody getting murdered in such a violent way on, especially like a... A student, a young Mm -hmm. female, you would think there would be some haste here with the investigation, but it seems like they kind of drug their feet a lot.
1: They they have been. Well, and then in uh, 2009, her parents petitioned or wrote the governor of Connecticut Mm -hmm. stating that potential forensic investigations made possible by significant advances in technology in the last decade are not being carried out due to shortcomings in the Connecticut forensic science lab and then the governor admitted they were backlogged 12,000 DNA samples what the hell i know it's it's just it they 12,000 samples still need to be tested
0: and and that was what 2002 you said 2009
1: 2009 mhm cheese so up until 2009 The DNA evidence under her fingernails have fingernails have been left unmatched to anybody. It's so crazy to me. Yeah. At the end of June 2008, there was a task force assigned to the Suzanne's murder. Okay. They revealed that only days after the crime, a female motorist told police that the time she was driving in the area... At around 10 p.m. when she saw a white male sprint past her and disappear into the church property. At the time, they also withheld this from the public. Which is just like, why are you withholding so much? Yeah. Because you could have given a description of this person. Well,
0: and part of me is like, I wonder if they're they're not disclosing a lot of this information because they are so backlogged. Mm -hmm. That they don't want to be like flooded with even more tips. Which... Is wild, but I could kind of maybe see that being the reasoning. Mm -hmm. But we have an active murder investigation, and I'm sure she's not the only murder investigation that they have. But it's very disappointing for the family, right? And if you need help, ask for help. You can you can contract sheriffs and police from other states to come and help you.
1: I know. So the the police department showed a picture to the that female motorist of a man named. James Van die okay, who was Suzanne's thesis teacher,
0: okay. He just sounds like somebody that would go to Yale
1: right. she He was a his, his, sorry, thesis advisor, okay, is that the actual terminology? Um, they showed a picture of him because he also had an unmarked van registered to him, okay, but she said that wasn't the person. And then, They decided not to talk to her again. What
0: is happening?
1: Uh Uh-huh. So it's just really weird. A lot of this stuff is, it's just a lack of like police work and involvement done.
0: Yeah. It's wild to me that they didn't get the security tapes from the store. The only store Mm -hmm. on campus that sells Fresca. Right. And you have a bottle of Fresca that has your victim's palm print on it. Mm -hmm. and you don't ask for that video surveillance what if she was with somebody
1: right that's just it baffles my mind
0: or what if somebody was in the store and they followed her out
1: right and they're also speculating with that person that she wrote the email to that she needed to go pick up the gre books from Mm -hmm. they might be involved in the murder as well because she was planning to go pick those up and yeah leave the
0: did those ever show up
1: no And no one's come forward to say that they were the person that was borrowing the books.
0: That's so weird. What is happening in this investigation? Nothing, apparently.
1: And I also feel bad for the thesis advisor, James, because it somehow got leaked that he was being questioned or was a suspect. And they, like, attacked him in a... I won't go into all the details, but he was also working for the Navy at the time. They went to the Navy and said he's involved in this. And they even like went to Washington, D.C. to get him fired from his job when the motorist didn't identify him. There was nothing linking them there. They even implied that they were having an affair, but there was no evidence of that.
0: What is happening? And so what?
1: Yeah, it was just. It was just so weird. They focused on this man
0: who hadn't
1: and didn't do actual like legwork of right getting video surveillance
0: all because he had an unmarked van.
1: Yeah, I (laughs) I don't know.
0: That is very bizarre. This case was is weird.
1: Right. (laughs) It just I it makes me so frustrated. Yeah. In September of 2006, it was officially... This whole case was officially classified as a cold case and moved over to Connecticut's, like, cold case unit. But they never added it to the cold case unit website. Right. Like, I wish you guys could see Andy's face right now. Like...
0: What is... I don't... I'm baffled right now. (laughs) I feel like if I was their parents, I would be, like... Raising a shitstorm right now.
1: Right, and then in 2007, the assistant state's attorney James Clark admitted that the case had been secretly reassigned back to New Haven in June of that year with a handpicked team of four retired detectives. Why? <laughs> I have no idea.
0: Handpicked retired detectives. I mean, I guess like you're pulling in people that like they're not working on any other cases. So
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, the cold case unit. Most cold case units like have current detectives on it, mm-hmm. and so I just i i don't understand why four retired detectives
0: stepped up all of a sudden or
1: working on this.
0: Yeah, that's what is I don't know what's happening.
1: And then in 2012, uh, there were some residents around, uh in the neighborhood. They went to the task force okay, and with some potential evidence that Suzanne's killer could have been a former Yale graduate student after telling friends he was convinced he would Im- imminently be arrested for the murder and then committed suicide. Okay. The task force did not pursue this lead.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you heard that, but that was a growl of
1: disappointment. <laughs> anyway, so... It was just a lot of dropping the ball, right? It was, I mean, there wasn't a lot of information, but there was DNA. Right. There was a palm print, like, and this was in 1998. That was like 24 years ago. Yeah. So they knew to bag the evidence and, you know, treat it how it should be. Yeah. And they should be able to run that DNA and find an answer for this family.
0: Right. It would be... Did they ever get get around to it?
1: No, they never got around to it. They still there's still no answers.
0: This case makes me angry.
1: It, it really does. It makes me angry, too. It, it's just it's just baffling. It is. It is baffling. That's what all I can really say about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Like if you have this DNA, why couldn't you just send it off to another another police station and have them run it or another lab and have them run it. Right. Like, if you're that backlogged, you need, you need help.
1: Right. And you're not far from New York, which probably has, like, a ton of laboratories.
0: Probably a lot more capability than Connecticut. Right. This is wild.
1: So if anyone has any information, please contact New Haven Police Department.
0: And Maybe they'll get back to you. Maybe they won't. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsolved America. Head on over to Facebook and Instagram and follow us at Unsolved America MVP.
0: And be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to contact us, please email MVP at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week. This has been an MVP podcast by Village Productions.